1: From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Hello,
2: and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my new podcast about big ideas and other problems. On today's episode, I'm talking to Charlton McIlwain, a professor of media, culture, and communications at NYU, and the author of Black Software, the Internet and Racial Justice from the AfroNet to Black Lives Matter.
3: There is a story here that goes well beyond our current moment, way back into the very earliest parts of computer networking, where black people were very much connected and a part of that story, and yet that story had been largely untold.
2: As we've gone through the pandemic, I've been really thinking about how much of our lives are now happening on screens and through software. I'm using software to record this podcast. You're using software to listen to it. We use software to connect with our friends, to play games, to move markets, to catch criminals. Software isn't eating the world. It's eating it. Professor McElwain's book takes a hard look at the long relationship between the Black community in America and software, from the early pioneers building online communities in the dial-up era, he calls them the vanguard, to the relationship between software, the civil rights movement, and the police, all the way to today's social platforms, which amplify and distribute everything from TikTok dances to the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, I spend a lot of time thinking about software and culture. That's my job. And I was excited to talk to Professor McElwain about how he sees that feedback loop between Black communities using software and what software gets made and how it gets made. And I've always been curious about why it seems like social platforms so quickly amplify Black culture and how those platforms might return some of that value to creators, which is not something that's happened historically. One thing to pay attention to in this conversation, and this feels like a lesson I just keep learning over and over again, is that while modern internet culture always feels new, like we're experiencing all of these problems for the first time, it really isn't. There are long patterns that stretch back across decades of people using computers and software to build communities and talk to each other. And we don't often stop and think about what we can learn from them. Maybe it's time we start. Okay. Dr. Charlton McElwain, author of Black Software. Here we go. Charlton McElwain, you're a professor of media, culture, and communication at NYU. Welcome to Decoder. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you. You you wrote a book a few months ago called Black Software, the Internet and Racial Justice. Which really tells a pretty big story about how black people in the United States have actually been a part of network communication from the beginning. They've been part of the tech industry. There's a pretty deep historical dive for the first half of the book. And the second half of the book connects all of that to what we've seen in this country over the past I would say year, year and a half, with the Black Lives Matter movement, with uh, the movement for racial justice, and how that has been largely expressed online. Give me a sense of how you how you began this project, because that is two very different stories. They feel connected, but each half of this book could be a book unto itself, really.
3: Indeed, and I think that represents kind of my, my journey in writing this book, which, um, uh, you know, for anyone out there who has uh, written a book knows the strange anxiety of... Uh, thinking about starting with a story that you think you know, um, pitching that to a publisher, getting a contract and a deadline, and then discovering somewhere along the way that uh, it's a completely different story than you imagined. And that's kind of how this book went. It started off really narrow. I wanted to understand where Black Lives Matter came from. Um, Here was a movement that seemed to come out of nowhere That had an impact that was uh, something that we hadn't really seen since literally the late 60s, early 70s, meaning their ability to produce sustained attention to issues of racism, racial justice, race in the uh, criminal justice system uh, and have that atop the public agenda and to stay there for a period of time. Uh, So this all happened and it seemed to come out of nowhere uh, it seemed to very much be pushed by what people were doing online in social media spaces and other connected technologies networked environments that they were working in to uh, to propel this movement. So I want to understand where it came from. I had at least enough sense to know that even though Black Lives Matter as a hashtag started in 2012, uh, that there had to be something before our current moment that was a, a precursor, that was a push, that was a a kind of foundation for Black Lives Matter to uh, launch itself from. So that's where I really started this book. Where do we have that genealogy, that digital genealogy, that we're computing genealogy that would lead to this current moment? So that's where the book started. And you know, from that beginning, as I started to find people, talk to people, this story started to move further and further back in time. It started uh, kind of in the 90s, where I thought, you know, this was my go to. This is where we have the start of the internet as we uh, know it in the early 90s. And I got there. And number one, I found, you know, an amazing group of people that I'd never. Known about, and that were that that was you know a group of black creators. Uh, some of them were simply you know hobbyists. Some were engineers. Some were lawyers. Some teachers, etc. All of whom were in this digital space, uh, creating content, networking across the country and the world through new computing uh, tools and devices and so forth. So, what they built through the '90s, I started to get a picture uh, of that and had a sense of. You know, wow, this is something I've never seen in the history of the Internet, the history of civil rights, the history of black invention. Uh, nowhere have I seen these people. And so uh, so that started to become, you know, a story that needed to be told uh, somewhere through there. I met a man named William Morell, and all of my conversations began the same way. Uh, I started off with a simple question that I thought I knew the answer to. When did you first get online? And, you know, and so, I, you know, I knew the answer, right? It, it had to be 94, 93, maybe 92, you know, for some. And I talked to William and out of the gate, I asked the question. And he sort of just, you know, oh, uh, I don't know. Well, let me think. Um, and I'm thinking, what does this take? You know, this can't be that hard. And finally, he said, you know, I'd, I'd say we first went online in 78, uh, and i remember having that moment of you know what what the hell do you mean by this was <laughs> uh, it mean to you to be online in 1978 and so eventually that story came out but that was a push for me to say there is a story here that goes well beyond our current moment well before the dawn of the internet as we know it, uh, way back into the very earliest parts of computer networking, where Black people were very much connected and a part of that story, and yet that story had been largely untold. And I remember a very particular moment after William just sort of saying in my mind, if I'm already back to 78 in this question, in this part of history— I have a sense that if I go back even further to that tumultuous moment of the 1960s, then I'm probably gonna find uh, a story that connects all these people. And sure enough, I did. And then ultimately, I felt the need to connect all of this, really. you know, That moment of the 60s and what happened at the dawn of uh, the computer revolution, at the height of the civil rights revolution to what's happening today in terms of the fight for racial justice and somehow fit in everything in between.
2: Yeah, it, it's a lot, it, the book is a lot to take in. It The sweep is incredible. One thing that I'm always focused on as I think about communications technologies broadly is that there's what the people who architected YouTube thought it would be, that it would be used in a certain way and for mostly good outcomes. And then there's what it is because of the people who use it, which can be really negative, but is also evolving. And those are radically divergent ideas. Absolutely. And often the conflict is expressed in things like moderation policies or free speech debates, which is sort of a negative expression. There's also a positive expression, which is that if you get it right, the people building the thing can see what the users are doing and they can build tools for them. And that feedback loop accelerates in really healthy and interesting ways. Indeed. One of the things I, I, I caught from the uh, the first part of your book that is back in time is that that feedback loop almost didn't exist for the people you're describing, the, the graduate students who set up the first website for their uh, the black students union, the people building the first Afrocentric message boards. They almost weren't seen in a way that the people building the software would accelerate their development. Why do you think that didn't happen? Because that you know, you talk to somebody who runs a social service today or a social platform today. They are hyper aware that they need to be paying a lot of attention to their users, even if all I ask them about is moderation decisions. But like, they know the the positive side of their equation is too. Why do Why do you think that wasn't there at the beginning?
3: Well, I think there's a you know a very peculiar story just about the invisibility of of users generally, but. Black folks specifically at that particular time where, you know, simply we were not on the on the map in terms of computing development, network development, and certainly in that 70s, 80s buildup to the commercial web, Black folks were not really a part of that story, not part of the sort of invention story in terms of being at, you know, embedded either in government research development centers or private enterprise or science and engineering institutions that were producing and making and building the actual hardware, software, etc. But the undercurrent of Black folks using these tools when they start to started to roll out, I think it was easy to just, uh, you know, those folks were so under the radar and not on the map of anyone thinking about uh, hey, we should pay attention to what these folks are doing, even if the, all they're doing is sort of tinkering around with things and 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 playing and so forth. There wasn't a sense of a black people's role or importance as a, a sort of a, a site of innovation or as a potential market later on as we move into the, uh, the more commercial ends. So I think there was this, this sense of invisibility that led to the fact that, you know, there was no real reason and no sense of a needed feedback loop in the development of the internet and computing. The interesting point though on this that I see is that there is a moment where that doesn't end up being the case, meaning There's a moment towards the early uh, days of the web where people did look back to and say, all right, now that we know this thing called the web, and now that we realize that it probably needs a lot of users, most of whom don't have a clue what the hell this technology could or should be used for, they did have a group of people to look back to just two or three years before. And that's where I think... Uh, the folks in the AfroNet who had built uh, that bulletin board system of black users came into play. And, you know, all the people that were playing in that world of the Internet of the 88s and 89 and 90s. And what they saw was an ability for black folks to, in the very least, produce community in those and through those networks. And I think it was interesting, certainly for me to then see that uh, as folks in 94, 95, 96 began to say, all right, how do we use this new tool? How do we bring people online? They look to the AfroNets of the world and try to mimic that pattern of creating a community in an online space and uh, appeal to Black users to try to, to model that.
2: One of the the major questions for the dominant social platforms and and even some of the ones that are are coming up is you have black communities on your platforms. They are creating an enormous amount of culture that culture becomes everyone's culture in the way that black culture in America tends to become everyone's culture. And it's still like the value exchange still isn't there. I'm I'm thinking specifically of black Twitter, Mm -hmm. right? The language of black Twitter quickly becomes the language of the United States Senate in a way that makes no sense to me. <laughs> right, like yeah. The words cancel culture came out of black Twitter, and now white Republicans in the United States Congress say cancel culture is the biggest threat to America. Yeah, I, I don't know how that happened. I couldn't uh. trace that pathway. At the same time, you have other smaller social networks like Clubhouse, which are trying not to make the same mistakes to their credit. Mm-hmm. They've started. They've given a lot of invites to to prominent black people and other people of color. They call them creators. They're going to try to pay them. But it still doesn't feel equitable that the exchange of the black community, when it's distributed that easily and that quickly without any sense of value exchange, mm-hmm. the platforms themselves tend to just pull the value out and distribute them, collect that value, not not bring it back to the communities it came from. How does that play? Has that gotten better? Am I describing a thing that has gotten progressively better or a thing that has stayed flat?
3: I think something that stayed flat, there's a very specific trajectory here, uh, I think, and some of this is, is chronicled in the book up to uh, a point, and that is, there's, I used to have a, a chapter in the book um, in an earlier version that was titled Remember When the Internet Was Black, and it had everything to do with this moment in time from, let's say, about 1993 to roughly 98 when you looked out on the internet landscape of that day, uh, whether it was through your large uh, internet service providers like AOL or CompuServe and so forth, what you saw were businesses, properties, creators, many of whom were black or uh, part of the uh, the African diaspora, who uh, had built profitable businesses in and through the the new internet and that platform. And you could see not only what was being produced culturally, but you could see who was benefiting and profiting and the ownership structure was very different for a very short period of time. Um, and so to see that explosion of Black culture and Black ownership and value all at the same time was certainly I think, a moment to be recognized and celebrated. But then, you know, come 98, 99, 2000, pretty much all of that is is gone. And what you see that is the story that is flat from that point on, in my opinion, is the continued recognition of the value of black culture and black cultural products, but without the critical elements of ownership and value or profit that uh, comes back to black creators, uh, entrepreneurs, um, et cetera. And so that's the story that I think remains flat, uh, that everywhere, as you mentioned, you see black culture. You see the celebration of it, of that culture. You see the ways in which black culture powers uh, social media platforms and, and everything else. But I don't think we've found the way to create real value in a sense of or a means by which Black folks largely stand to benefit from uh, the profits uh, of that. And, you know, I'm I, I go back and forth to whether I'm optimistic or pessimistic about whether that'll ever happen. All I know is that it takes and will take an outsized level of capital and investment to make sure that that happens. And I'm, uh, you know, a little wait and see to see if that actually materializes.
2: One of the stories in your book is about the, the early days of AOL and an executive at AOL who's actually a sort of like a minor player in the story of The Verge, like off to the side, Ted Lienzis, who's a major executive at AOL. And he says, AOL is going to be built on communities. And he goes and spends money on uh, a bunch of black entrepreneurs to build communities, to integrate with AOL. Much later, the CEO of Vox Media, Jim Bankoff, my boss, was mentored by Ted Leonsis, right? And so I can see it. Okay, here's somebody who believed in communities. He mentored this guy. And now I work at the company that guy runs. Mm -hmm. What I don't see on the flip side is that other group of executives, I'm not ascribing anything to Ted. I think this is a structural problem. The other group of executives who were given the money, who were given the opportunity, they haven't started the next chain of businesses or platforms or internet companies. I'm I'm wondering why you think that is because from the From the jump, the opportunities look the same, right? Here's some money, build some community on this dominant networked platform. He was obviously trying to do it. He saw the opportunity Mm -hmm. and that didn't leverage itself into the next thing.
3: Yeah, I think, you know, in part, you know, that's a that's a, a I think a critical recognition. There was something about that moment. And I do think that there was something about being able to see in that moment the value of Black cultural products as a sort of leader um, for this new wave of uh, what this thing called the internet would become. And for someone like Ted to, to recognize uh, folks like David Ellington and uh, Malcolm Cassell and uh, the team that built Net Noir and uh, the things that came after, I think was a recognition of if we want to jumpstart this, here's a, a market that we know is solid and that's there. And we know the value of Black culture. And I think that was the sort of key recognition uh, from Ted when you know responding to folks like David who say, look, we all know this. We know the world loves black culture. So that first investment made sense when you had that configuration of users, markets, etc., at that moment in time. I do think that part of what happened as the the 90s sort of came to a close. What also started to happen is that the Internet starts to open up and we start to get a little bit more traction on the commercial potential and possibilities for this new thing. Um, And my sense is simply that the sense of an existing market that would include and revolve around Black cultural products and producers evaporated when... Uh, you start to see Black folks being a, a much more of a minority part of that uh, growing internet market. So, I think part of it was just a, you know, in part a kind of a course cor- correction in a in a sense that we know how markets are built, we know how capital is built uh, in terms of who uh, powers it, in terms of of labor and so forth, and who generally stands to benefit. Uh, And I think that pattern then sort of kind of corrected and played itself out as the Internet expanded, expanded in terms of users, expanded in terms of the types of commercial enterprises uh, that began to uh, connect. Uh, And I think it simply became much easier to say, we can do this and, you know, essentially exploit black labor and production and profit in the ways that we've always have, Uh, That was the easy thing to do. The harder thing to do, which would have taken much more thought, deliberation, uh, and effort, was how do we maintain this? And I think that's simply the question that, uh, you know, apparently too few people ask themselves.
2: Do you think the platforms are doing a good job of reckoning with that now? No. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? What would you like to see? I mean, I, I think, you know, A, I think a lot
3: of it really for me comes back to this sense of, of, of value, right? So I still don't think that the platforms have figured out a way to say we recognize and identify the ways in which Black culture production is a unique value, added value to the platforms and how they work. You know, and, and Black Twitter could be, you know, one of those uh, examples and has not sort of planned for it in a way that makes it a part of the business structure and a business structure that then says, you know, puts a, a monetary value in some ways on that and then says here's a way that we're going to take that monetary value and return it to those who have produced this value in some way. So I think, you know, some of the platforms have done things that are sort of on the outskirts of trying to, you know, create an environment that is, you know, free of of trolls or things like that and still make it an inviting peop, uh, place for uh, Black folks and others to come and uh, and hang out in. But I don't think we've turned this corner in how do we flip, again, this, this notion of value such that those who are producing dividends for the platform also get seen as in some way uh, or have an ownership stake uh, in that. Um, and I think that's a big thing for platforms, to wrestle with until, or at least when we, you know, we may have some platforms that are black owned or minority owned that might look different.
2: I want to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk to you about the other side of building software, which is making sure we do it responsibly. we we'll are back.
0: Support for Decoder comes from Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Whether you're seeking a location for your podcast, teaching language courses, or selling handcrafted ceramics, Squarespace has all the tools you need to create a home on the web. You can create a polished professional place that connects people with whatever it is you're excited about. Squarespace also supports all forms of connecting with those people, whether you're selling products online or in person, or offering memberships. You can make your website look exactly how you want it. They even have the tools to help you create a custom logo. And they make it easy to create a place for people to schedule an appointment with you, browse your services, or learn more about why you do what you do. Visit squarespace.com decoder for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use offer code decoder to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain.
1: Support for Decoder comes from Green Chef. If you could make a single change in your life that made you feel better and got you performing at your highest level, you'd do it, right? That's what makes Green Chef such a no-brainer. The meal kits offer a ton of delicious options that make it easy to eat cleaner and feel better without spending hours in the kitchen. They'll deliver everything you need to make convenient, wholesome, tasty meals right to your doorstep with more than 80 meal options available every single week. Green Chef's menu is packed with farm-fresh ingredients you might not find elsewhere, like figs, artichokes, and sustainably sourced seafood. Plus, their menu now includes a ton of science-backed gut and brain health recipes, which were developed with dietitians to boost energy and immunity while improving digestion. Go to greenchef.com 60decoder and use code 60decoder to get 60% off, plus 20% off your next two months. That's greenchef.com slash 60Decoder. And use code 60Decoder to get 60% off, plus 20% off your next two months.
2: We're back, Professor McElwain. A big part of Black software focused on police software and where it started, where it came from, the networks that the police were using in the 70s and 80s. That obviously ladders right into the current moment. There's, a, I think, a national reckoning about surveillance and facial recognition that's taking place. We're seeing it with the Capitol protesters who didn't realize mm-hmm. how deeply they were being surveilled or didn't realize <laughs> that their videos in parlor were able to be scraped. Yeah. Give me a sense of that arc, because I don't think enough people have looked into the past to figure out what we've already done with computers and policing in order to determine what we should do in the future.
3: Yeah. And I, you know, I think about this. Often, and my mind goes back to um, uh, I forget what the outlet was. It might have been ProPublica, it may have been some a different source. But about two years ago, who you know broke this story about the NYPD sharing its you know video surveillance system with IBM, and IBM's purpose was trying to build an AI system to power its facial recognition and identify criminal suspects based on the color of their skin. And I remember that reading that report. And you know the the bombshell was a this is happening, and then the second one was you know this has been under wraps for five years that NYPD and IBM have been colluding to do this. And I remember just having a chuckle and thinking, "Wow, you you guys really missed it. This was not a five year arc; it was a fifty year one in very specific detail." And that is, it's in terms of the relationship between NYPD and IBM. But more broadly for me, that arc, you know, signaled something for me, which was a realization that for all the conversation that we're having right now about the devastation of uh, surveillance technologies and others utilized in criminal justice, that this is not a new question and that we have been here for a very uh, long time. And those, that to me said, two things. Number one, it should give us pause. Um, and what sh- to me should give us pause is that that origin story, that origin story of computing technology where uh, the first uses of the computer was to essentially devastate uh, Black people and Black communities. And the realization that that was you know, unlike today where everybody's sort of running from and, you know, your your tech companies and so forth are like, you know, save me from the bad PR of the impact this is having on these communities. Being in a moment of time in history where everybody was very clear and explicit that we have a threat, that threat is in our urban areas. It's black people who are black, brown, generally poor, and they are protesting in the streets. They are fighting. We see them as the face of crime and violent behavior. We need to use our technological powers to curtail their ability to thwart uh, the nation's order, economic order, racial order, power, etc. So to see that realization very explicitly powering the first uses of Uh, Our computational systems, I think.
2: I just want to be clear. You're talking about in the 60s and the 70s. Correct. The the end of the civil rights era. The Watts riots figure prominently in your book.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: So, those moments where,
3: you know, at the height of the civil rights movement, you're also beginning this crest of uh, computing technology development and the widespread thinking about the future of computing. What is this going to mean for us now and in the future? And so, it's always hit me. That, you know, that was a moment where there was a decision point, right? Here we have this great power that comes with computing. Uh, We could have very well said, you know, how could we use the power of computing to help spearhead economic equality at a moment in time when that was clearly a uh, a thing of great concern? But our minds went to what our preeminent problem was at that time, which had everything to do with race. It had everything to do with blackness and black communities. And then we built our computing systems to fit the problem uh, as it looked then. And I think what has persisted is that problem has not changed or our framing of that problem has not uh, changed. And so from the 60s, 70s, 80s up to our current point, we still frame the problem of crime and criminality in terms of blackness and brownness. And therefore, our computing systems have uh, followed that same, uh, developmental pattern and trajectory, uh, where now we're seeing really the, uh, the sort of in stages, if you will, or the full fruition of things that were really just uh, germinating in 1966, 67, 68, when these first uh, systems uh,
2: began to be built. Give me an example of something that's come to, to fruition.
3: I mean, fa- facial recognition has has been an outgrowth of that, and the facial recognition has been an outgrowth of the ability and desire to profile criminal suspects, right? So this has everything to do with, quote unquote, uh, prevention of crime as it was framed in uh, 1965 as much as it is is now, right? How do we prevent crime? Well, we try to understand who's most likely to commit those crimes and where and what they look like and what their MO is. And so the more data we have to tell us and give us a profile of that person, the more we can uh, use police resources, whether that's manpower uh, or technological powers, to identify police and then constrain that. And so I think that impulse to be able to predict and therefore solve a problem because you're able to predict the the causes. Uh, and antecedents of that uh, chronal behavior. And so facial recognition as a fruition of an initial impulse that was really just about tracking people. And of course, at, in 1968, what we had was a physical description that is part of these systems, right? Who, uh, what your race is, what your color, your eyes, your hair, skin, et cetera, are in to, to as great detail as possible. And so facial recognition becomes another layer that is even better than having a description of someone. Now I have the image of that person along with uh, a description to match. And so that's why I say in many, in many ways that facial recognition technology is the full fruition of an impulse that starts in the early mid sixties to say, how do we identify and visualize, and locate people who are predisposed to commit crime? And then how do we mobilize police resources to thwart them? And uh, so that then, I think, has prepared or framed the evolution of policing technology ever since. And I think what has persisted during that whole arc as well, of course, is the position and framing Uh, and prejudices around black and brown people as a perpetual source of crime and criminality.
2: Right. The the predictive policing system is it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? It says the data says the the black and brown people are going to do crimes. The cops go there. And lo and behold, I find some crime. They found some crimes and on and on we go. The hard question there, and I've really struggled with this, is we do want the cops to be effective. And the the cops want computers and they say that computers are what's going to help them be more effective and more targeted and maybe make better use of limited resources. Right. There's a, there's a natural argument here, right? Like I want to do a better job at my homework, mom, buy me a computer so I can do my homework better, but you can extend that to, I want to be more productive at my job, automation and computing technology can help me be more productive and more accurate. What is it about the police so specifically where it's just that feedback loop? What breaks that feedback loop?
3: Well, you know, I think one of the things that goes wrong often, and I think, you know, maybe even peculiarly in criminal justice and in policing is, you know, there's there's a recognition that this is hard, right? Policing is hard. The stakes are high. But then there is this jump to what seems to be an easy solution. And I think the... Connection and the idea, and the sort of dream that the technology is always more efficient and easier and allows us to do our jobs better in terms of police uh, has somehow become uh, ingrained in that thought to where it's the technology that drives this story and not policing per se, uh, or not policing that says, Look, everything that we want to do is done in the service of safety, ideally in the service of justice. And we know how complicated that is, right? So just imagine a world where we're not even thinking about technology and just thinking about policing and policing where you have two ideals, safety and justice, right? And good people who are in roles that they're in to do good things. And that is keep people safe, do so in a just way, meaning there's, there's no disparate impact on certain people more than others. We're not targeting certain people more than others. We're trying to keep people safe generally uh, across the board equally. And then, of course, we can't extract then those two things, that I think, have, again, over a long arc of time become conjoined. Number one, that Black and brown folks are overly represented as criminals. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that then gets mired into and really directs police use of computing systems, number one. Uh, But the other is this over-reliance on the technology and the belief that just because it's a technological solution, it is better, a colleague of mine named Meredith uh, Broussard coined this term. She calls techno chauvinism. And it's really about that. The idea that technology, a technological system is uh, in and of itself useful, important uh, and has value. But I always I always go back to that same moment in 64, 65, 66 and so forth, where if you went into a police station and said, hey, we've got this new technological tool, you are more likely than not to have officers say, to hell with that. I don't need that. (laughs) I do a perfectly good job knowing who it is I see out on the street, the relationships I have with people, the connections that I have. And sure, I may still do certain things wrong. I still may have certain prejudices that uh, lead to different kinds of outcomes. But you know what? I don't need your technology. And to see that Story flip from that point up to now, where the predilection is to say this database is more effective in telling me uh whether this individual person or this set of people are likely to have committed this crime than my own good sense or my own skills as a police officer being part of a community and being able to put two together that says ah maybe this person seems like a suspect, but is not likely. I'm much more predisposed to just trusting uh, this system that says, uh, hey, these five people in this uh, dragnet because of a combination of their location and location data and their facial recognition and other characteristics tells me, you know, I should go show up at their house to uh, arrest them. So I think there's something about that loop that has not been interrupted and that has now become so ingrained in policing that says the technology is always better. I don't need to question it. I don't need to question its outcomes. I don't even need to question the modems for which it was made. And the fact of the matter is, I think if you ask a lot of police officers to go in and explain to you the technologies they use and rely on, Many of them won't be able to tell you or explain to you how those technologies work. It's a simple, I push some buttons, it gives me a suspect. My job is easier. I go and do what I've got to do. And you know, many of the disparate outcomes that uh, make these things so controversial and unjust, I think, come a lot from just that simple over-reliance on a technology and a technological solution uh, for problems that are much more complex.
2: Let me put that idea in the tension with what we were talking about with uh, communities online. One of the good things about platforms like Twitter and Facebook and TikTok and YouTube is that black people are just more visible. They, they're able to communicate more broadly. There are less gatekeepers, fewer intermediaries. Black culture is right. It, it just quickly becomes the dominant culture. That is very human. That's very humanizing. Right? We're just able to see each other more, no matter what community you're in. Mm-hmm. You have something to say, and people are into it, that you, you can be found. And that is a remarkable quality of the modern platforms, regardless of all their other ills. On the flip side, you're saying the police are getting more and more dehumanized from the communities they serve because of technology. That seems like a really core tension to the modern era.
3: Absolutely. I mean, it's that, that technology produces... The distance. And, you know, just thinking about the things that you can deduce from being out on a street corner versus staring at a screen with a variety of streams of data that tell you what's purporting to be going on on that same street corner. Right.
2: But aren't those same cops on on TikTok and Twitter and marinating in this larger culture? And why doesn't that get itself resolved?
3: Yeah, I mean they are but it you know they may be as private citizens but again when the question becomes am I using this platform as a place of you know this is where I live this is where I play etc the moment it becomes this is where I do my work of policing and crime and so therefore there's a a problem motive that permeates my engagement with that space and now i'm seeing everything as you know basically potential suspects and this is what uh, has happened with the encroachment of police and policing uh into uh the platform arena where you know the the disconnect is between you know folks who are there saying look i'm just living life and I'm doing things that uh give me enjoyment or having fun. I'm not policing myself in terms of who I'm talking to. And so the same things might play out in that space as may play out um, uh, if I were out on the street, but simply as an ordinary way of doing life. But then when I've got when I've got cops then coming into this space and saying, I'm here to find people who have broken the law, may have broken the law in some way, and enforces a surveillance lens around that, an enforcement lens around that, then all of a sudden everyone becomes in some way a suspect at the moment there's a a precipitating problem. And all of a sudden that innocent thing I said that probably sounds crass or crude, maybe even violent, becomes evidence for me to use in a criminal investigation against you, whether or not you actually participated in a crime or not. And so, you know, the the, the social media and what plays out there becomes a point of criminality uh, in some ways differently than how you would make sense of things or how you would do police work if most of your work was out on the street embedded in uh, the networks of people that you are. It gives you a different kind of discretion to to check yourself, right? You, there are different things that, you know, if I'm out on the street and the people I see and how things work, how people have conversation, who interacts with whom, there's a different kind of sensibility that allows my decision-making to operate very differently than if I'm removed from those people and now there's distance and I don't know these people out on the street. I know them through their Facebook persona or their Twitter handle or what have you. And again, it's just further removed, further possibilities of sort of abstractly thinking about human beings, being disconnected from Uh, the humanity of folks who are on those platforms.
2: We're going to take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about the creator economy and representation when it comes to building platforms.
4: Right now, businesses are facing tough choices. Do you cut costs or drive growth? Solve for today or build for tomorrow? Do you satisfy your shareholders or satisfy your customers? The answer is yes. You don't have to choose. With the intelligent platform for digital business from ServiceNow, you can say yes to unifying your existing systems and yes to accelerating growth. Visit servicenow.com to see how we can help you put yes to work. The world works with ServiceNow. Support for this show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for businesses to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers, organized by skill and experience. Streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. And for anyone needing the highest level of white-glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you. Project partners will outline requirements, assemble a roster of freelancers, and manage a schedule to ensure your deliverables are completed on time. Ready to scale smarter? Visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code VOX for fifteen percent off any service. That's profiverrf iver and use code VOX.
2: All right, we're back with Charlton McElwain, author of Black Software. Here's a hard question that I, I struggle with all the time. Why do we all work for Twitter for free? <laughs> I do it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you do it. Uh, you know, I looked at your Twitter account before I came on. You, yeah. you work for free a couple times a day. Uh, you exactly. know, I work for free way too many times a day. Why is, is it just we're being seen and that is the value and that's the incentive? Is, is there something that can break that cycle where we're all creating value for free, because I, that to me is the heart of it, right? Like it can get as inequitable mm-hmm. as you want. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I still wake up and I'm like, got to send some tweets for free.
3: Right. <laughs> I mean, it, it's such a, a hard thing. And, you know, it's it's hard for me to know whether, you know, this was very specifically a kind of a deliberate forethought uh, sort of plan. Um, but the truth of the matter is that, the platforms have done well as creating a sense of value for all of us that now it becomes uh, something that we are so connected to that becomes part of our uh, sort of personal infrastructure, uh, if you will. It beca- If I've got something to say, I've got I've got nobody to talk to, particularly in the moment like this. Nobody's going <laughs> to listen to me, but I've got Twitter. So what am i going to do you know i'm going to try to say what i have to say and i know i have an audience and this thing has created the possibility for me to have that audience right so so i work for free because in some ways i i see some value that trickles back to me it may not be monetary in nature i may not be able to calculate it in terms of uh dollars and cents but i do see some personal value that's me i'm not saying that Probably most users see it that way, who just sort of go and do their thing because this is a place to uh, to do their thing. But there I think that's the kind of grip. And then what you really need to do if you were to shut something like that down is to flip the switch and say, I'm done. I'm off. I'm not playing the game anymore. And, you know, the risks of that are sort of twofold. Number one, I don't get that small sense of value that existed there for me all right, where's where's my audience now? I got to go try to build that on my own or give up having a voice in a way. The second part is Twitter might just say, who the hell cares? <laughs>
0: we
3: we will go on without you. Thank you very much for your service, your labor, uh, everything you provided for us. Sorry you're going, but we'll find people like you elsewhere in the future and continue to make continue to make money. So, I you know, I think it's we all work for free because we find some value in what the platforms have uh, created. I think if we are to get to some place where there's not this constant tension about how this plays out on particular platforms um, and the direction that things take is a mutual recognition and an equitable recognition of, all right, I do things that produce value for the platform and I also gain value from something that the platform has Produce for me an infrastructure for me to work and uh, play and do all these other kinds of things in. And so, some kind of reckoning that makes sure the, the labor to value exchange there has some equitable, something in equity built into it. And I'm not so sure that that's the case when we look at the large scale financial value that a platform gets out of drawing on our uh, sort of mass labor. Uh, and what we get as an individual from uh, sort of playing in that sandbox.
2: Well, the reason I ask is one. I just want somebody to tell me to stop working for free, honestly. Um, and <laughs> but more broadly, to connect to your your you know your thesis and in your book, you're describing a moment early on in the history of computing when big companies like IBM, big universities like Clemson would build pipelines for minorities to come join the workforce, get skills, train up, do all those things. Then in the 90s, there's a point where you describe them as the vanguard, where they actually stand to own the products, where they stand to make a lot of money because they built communities, they were early. That moment goes away as as the platforms and the broader Internet dominates, and that's kind of where we are now. But the, the other half of your book and your thesis and where you began was, well, there's Black Lives Matter. Right there's the ability for the community to harness the tools and say, "Look at this injustice," and I, I think maybe for the individual, there's no there's no obvious equitable value there. I'm not getting paid to be outraged, mm-hmm. but for the community, there's a massive amount of value that's being generated, a massive amount of attention, and potentially political and cultural change. How how should we balance that?
3: I think you know, I think we have to do what you know, black folks and people of color and marginalized folks have have always done in those situations, which is extract value from what we've been given. Number one, we didn't we don't own those platforms. We didn't build them, but we can utilize them and we can figure out how to use utilize them uh, both for our individual uh, sort of pleasure, but also thinking about uh, sort of communal Uh, interests and uh, ways that would serve those interests. And I think that's the story you saw playing out with Black Lives Matter and, and many other instances. So I think we have to do that on the one hand, but at the same time, I think we have to still fight for what we so long have not had, which is that sense of ownership, our ability to build our own thing, our own way for our own purposes and to our own ends. And I think that's really what's been the missing piece of, of the puzzle. You know, the question I often, you know, get asked is, you know, is it viable uh, to have, you know, the next Twitter that is black owned or is minority uh, owned and, and so forth? You know, is it viable to have a black Twitter that is a black Twitter and I think, you know, it's an, it's an interesting question that I think needs to happen because I think, you know, the, the, I, the circumstances and the pitfalls with platforms as they exist, which we've seen so many times, even with something as powerful and impactful as Black Lives Matter is everything is still contingent, right? A, I'm not sure if this is my place where I'm organizing and pushing for these things and having a uh, great visibility and, and outcome. I don't know that it's going to exist continuously. I don't know if uh, the owners of the platform are someday going to decide that particular features uh, of the platform are shut down or cut off that then doesn't afford me uh, the same uh, opportunities to gain visibility and engagement in those same ways. I cannot assume that the powers that be, law enforcement, et cetera, won't uh, sort of stake these places out for surveillance in the ways that they have over the last uh, few years. And then essentially turn this into a platform that's really not a place I can go to and count on to do this kind of work um, that pushes forward the interest of, of me and uh, my community and, and all those things. And so I think we have to play the game in the spaces that we are able to and gain a foo- foothold there, transform them in the ways that we uh, can. But I think we still have to push for that, you know, dream that we've seen unrealized all too often, which is the ability to own shape Develop something that truly is molded not only in terms of our culture, but in terms of our interests and in the both the immediate and long term uh, outcomes that it delivers.
2: Let me give you a small example of a, like a creator economy story that I think is really interesting. There's Versus, which Swiss Beats in Timberland they start in the pandemic just live streams of all of their famous friends talking about their music, playing their music. And it's supposed to be a battle, but it's not really a battle. It's just like a cool hang. And they have leveraged this from like a thing they were doing on Instagram live all the way to a business that is now going to run the pro bowl for the NFL. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And my understanding of Swiss beats and Timbaland is they are not bad at business. I assume they're being paid handsomely for this franchise that exists now that they can take in all these places and monetize in all these different ways. Why isn't that a more common story, right? Is it just because they already happen to be famous and they already happen to have the business infrastructure and the, the connects and they, you know, Jay-Z is the guy in charge of, of culture for the NFL. So they probably just made it like, is it just, those are natural built in advantages or is it that this system, like systematically we don't want those things to happen, right? Like, Because there are lots of people online who build cool products that have a big Mm -hmm. audience on the platforms. And the second they try to take them off the platform or monetize directly or sell it again, Mm -hmm. all kinds of bad things happen.
3: Yeah, I I do think there's a sense in which, you know, people have different starting point uh, points. so. Uh, you know, versus has uh, a starting point that is much higher than, uh, your average entrepreneur who has a good idea and maybe even have a, has a good, uh, prototype of a product and, uh, and so forth. And that missing piece is, you know, in my mind, that connection to a network of, of contacts, uh, resources, capital, et cetera, that's already embedded for someone who is, Uh, A celebrity who's already producing in another sphere and, you know, transforming something into another. I think that's what we're losing out on because that group of people is small relatively, right? We have a much expansive base when you look at uh, people of color who uh, are entrepreneurs and creators and so forth and have great ideas, but what they don't have is the access to those areas of capital and power, the networks that says, all right, for me to go from here to here, I need this, this, and this, and be able to know, all right, I get that from this person and get an introduction to that person or have three or four people that can say, oh, I know what you need here. I can make sure you get it uh, from these folks uh, over here and So I think that's where we're losing out because our eyes are always pitched at those who already have access, right? So it's easy for these folks to just say, Hey, I, you know, here's my, my folks I go to for money, for ideas. When someone recognizes what I'm doing, they come to me to ask me to do something else. So that's already. There, We don't have too many folks that are looking below and looking at all the talent that's out there in the world and saying, oh, I recognize what could be possible if I see what you're doing and elevate what it is that you're doing in all these different ways, whether that's capital or connections or a wider network and so forth. And so I think it's to me, it's, you know, sometimes I like to pitch it differently than just thinking about, you know, sort of the nefarious forces that say you know, we don't want you playing here. And I certainly think that's obviously real in a sense of it. But I think so much more of it is simply our laziness in, in almost some ways to sort of say, let me do something different. Let me look in a different direction and see if I find different people and ideas worth investing in and backing and pushing because, because the ideas are great and better because of people who are pushing and producing them uh, are different and are liable to bring something very different to the table. We tend to just simply say, look, we know this works. So let me look for that same thing in a very different way, but uh, the same thing over and over and over again. And we tend to have this sense about, you know, the same thing, being able to count on it, being reliable. And we miss out on so much that's out there and untapped in uh, the world of black and brown folks who are uh you know who are ready to sort of move into uh, this territory, who do have ideas who have produced, who do have experience, and you know often we simply say, "Ah, these people don't exist out there. <laughs> none of them has cropped my desk. No one's showed up in my office somehow, but it's because you know we haven't looked, and that's really the reason.
2: You know, uh, we did an episode of Decoder with a woman named Arlen Hamilton, a VC who runs a venture capital firm called Backstage Capital. They're focused on investing in underrepresented founders. And I asked her, are you afraid of the tech giants? And she said, well, no, they're not looking where I'm looking. And every other tech executive in VC is terrified of the tech giants because they are all looking in the same place. And I, It's interesting to connect those two answers. Right and to say, well, there's actually a world of opportunity. We just have to build the network to create value out of it. Exactly. I guess what I, what I would ask you is, isn't that you know I'm, I'm like a capitalist at heart. Isn't that a better solution, right, to focus on building that network and elevating the people and giving them access to tools than And I worry that Jack Dorsey is going to hire the right three black people to build the next features of Twitter. Like, because that is a solution I do hear about all the time, that Mm -hmm. inside the big tech companies, there's not enough representation. I I don't think there is, but that feels like a narrow time box solution. And honestly, you're, you're still just betting on three individuals to get it right, no matter what, who they are. Right. And that to me, like, it needs to be connected to that much bigger idea. And I'm wondering if you see that bigger idea taking form.
3: Yeah, you know, I I think some in some way there's this disconnect, you know, particularly in the uh sort of the capitalist landscape where there's supposed to be so much faith in the market, um not to go look into the actual market to see that there's a whole sense of possibilities out there and and um ignore them. And I don't I don't know whether it's, you know, simple obstinance or, you know, risk aversion, but I do think there is a sense that, you know, if we're going to have real innovation and not just continue to just sort of replicate the same thing over and over with a new twist, uh, then you got to, you, you got to, you know, 180 and completely look and play in a different pool. And so, you know, there's always this sort of talk about, you know, kind of the representation when we talk about tech companies, as you mentioned, you know, and the number of black and brown folks that are at a Facebook or a Twitter or what have you. And, you know, That is important. I think it's important to have critical masses of those folks uh, across the board at those companies and particularly in leadership. But I don't think that's the solution because you're still within an umbrella that says this is what we do and everything that you do is in the service of what we do. Uh, we got to have a lot more people thinking about what it is we do and can do out there. And I think the more we invest in that sort of wide diversity of possibilities, you know, it's I'm, I, I'm blown away and was blown away in writing black software and looking at the sort of the power and ingenuity of black folks at that particular moment. Um, I work every day, you know, with students and you see, you just see the amazing possibilities uh, that are there, the kinds of ideas, the kind of people that uh, come through. And it's like, I can't even write the story of what could be other than knowing that if people look around and look elsewhere and invest in those possibilities, I mean, it's bound for something amazing, uh, to come out of that. And so I think that kind of spreading of the wealth as it were, in terms of investing in new, uh, ideas, new people, new networks, I think that's the next big thing. And the person who realizes and figures out how to harness that new area where nobody's looking is gonna, you know, build something special and, uh, And probably profit a good deal as a result.
2: So let me end here because this is, I think, the biggest question of our our moment in the pandemic. You and I are talking to each other through software. Our lives are more and more mediated by screens. But, you know, ideally, halfway through the year, a lot of people will be vaccinated. We're going to get away from our computers. We're going to go back to life, uh, regular life in some way. What is the what do you think our relationship with software will be like? Not just for black folks, which is what your your book is about, but it feels like all of our relationships to software and screens and platforms have changed in this pandemic year. We're all thinking about it more. We're all demanding more. What is the change you hope to see when we go back and I can interview you in person again?
3: I mean, I think at least one thing that will come out of it is a much more deep reflection of and understanding what, what screens and mediated contexts are good for and what they're not. I think, you know, I think above all things, I hope we get out of this, the very value of face-to-face communication. And again, I think we're finding that it's, you know, maybe not completely necessary for everything, but I think we're starting to see when it's missing and the implications of when we cannot have that kind of, of contact. And I think to be human is to be together physically, to be able to interact and engage and see and engage all of our senses in a way that can't be done um, on a screen. And so I hope, so part of what comes out of this is a renewed commitment to just thinking about what makes us human and how we Build our lives around maximizing our ability to connect uh, as human beings uh, and understand that the deep uh, humanity that is at the root of of all of us.
2: What do you think is going to happen to our relationship with software?
3: I mean, I don't think it'll change.
2: Like, I want to throw my phone out the window. Like right. That's right. Like, I'm done with it.
3: You know? I don't think it'll change much. I think it software has uh, a grip on everything that we do that I don't think is going to be undone uh, in this moment. In fact, it's probably going to work its way into more facets of of our lives. I think, you know, the ways in which, you know, probably you, certainly I and many others, you know, saw the evolution of, of email years ago and how much that, uh, bound us to longer times for working and so forth, you know, the productivity of screens. I think we're starting to to see that and the encroachment of uh, the screen on our space, uh, on work, on home, on life. There will be companies uh, that say, you know what, I don't think you have to come back into work anymore. That screen is just fine and it's much cheaper. Uh And so more and more lives that are lived on the screen, mediated through software that constricts what it is that we can do you know whether you're on a zoom platform or a microsoft teams and uh you know the software has dictated how you can interact and with how many people you can comfortably interact and so i don't know i don't think it's going to go in the direction of freeing us from software i don't think it's going to go in the direction of a less reliance on Uh, technological tools that drive uh, everything that we do.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm going to try to stop working for free and not throw my phone out the window.
3: Let's all make that a goal, right?
2: All right. Professor McElwain, that was terrific. Thank you so much for being on the show.
3: Absolutely. Thank you. Appreciate it.
2: Thank you again to Professor Charlton McElwain for taking the time to talk today and thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Sophie Erickson and Andrew Marino. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you next week.
1: Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Do you want a career that meets you where you are and takes you where you want to go? Whatever your individual ambitions, motivations, and skills may be, discover your potential at Deloitte, right along with purpose-driven teams and a difference-making culture. Be seen for who you are and celebrated for what you bring. Discover your impact at Deloitte. Learn more at deloitte.com us slash